Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Thank you, men. Men up here. Wow. We have a lot of ladies gone to the retreat, so I don't remember the last time we had just men voices up here. Did did well, right? Yeah. Yeah. However, we miss the ladies, and we'll have some ladies back next week. I I think we should uh, pray for ladies at the retreat this morning, that as they finish up and head home, they will be refreshed and renewed and come home to their husbands and children safely. So, let us pray. We are grateful, Father, for your kindness shown to us in the, the rain, for it comes on the righteous and the wicked. And we pray that that kindness would bring some to repentance, for they would look at this world and the seasons and the rain that gives life, and that they would see that you were a God who is infinite and eternal and personal and loving, and that they might grope for you and somehow find you as you draw them to yourself. And we thank you, Lord, for your blessings, and that's the way that you work in people's lives. Thank you, Father, for the ladies of Valley Bible Church who have been away this weekend at a retreat. We pray that they are refreshed, they've been challenged and healed, that they would come back um, ready to live for you um, with new strength. We ask, Father, for them to come home safely. And we pray now that as we delve into the Word of God, that your Spirit might teach us and guide us and empower us to live for you, to your glory. And these things we pray in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Promises. The world is full of promises, mostly empty. And um, we're promised many, many things in life. Sometimes they come through, sometimes they don't. Um, The Bible has lots of promises. And this passage this morning has numerous promises. We're going to pull out four. There are probably more than four. But uh, these are not promises where God says or where Jesus says, I promise I will do this. And they're not merely words. But when, when Jesus speaks and when he, when he says something, it will happen. It must happen because his word is authoritative. And when he says something, you can count on it. It is as good as done. And the promises that he gives us this morning are fulfilled, they are being fulfilled, and they will be fulfilled. So I ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have them with you, or a phone or some digital format of the Word of God, and turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 14. And our text this morning is John chapter 14, verses 22 through 31. It is our custom because the Word tells us Um, that we would like to give honor to the reading of his word. So would you stand as we read God's word? And hopefully by standing and looking and listening, we will pay attention to its truth as we read it this morning. God's word, John chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, the word of God. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us? And not to the world. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. 
but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Get up. Let us go from here. And God's people said, Amen. We jump right into these promises, shall we? Promise number one. The promise of His love and the promise of His presence. Verse 22 that we began with, Judas, not Iscariot. Um, They have to clarify that because Judas is the one who betrayed him. Can you imagine him going around? uh, So what's your name, Judas, not Iscariot? Uh, Just got to kind of always clarify that. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to Jesus, "Um, Lord, what has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us, but you're not going to disclose yourself to the world? Um, you would think if you're the Messiah, you're going to show the world who you are. In fact, uh, where we left off, Jesus said in verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, says, aren't you going to show the world that you're the Messiah? Don't you come with... uh, uh, apocalyptic signs and wonders and, and you're going to appear to the entire world that the world might see you? And Jesus' answer is basically no, not at this time. In his answer to Judas' question, Jesus makes an astounding promise to us. It's given to the disciples, but it's given to us as well. Jesus answers that he And the Father will come and live in and with those who love him and keep his word. But that they will not come to those who reject him. That's what he means in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The words that are the Father's, that are mine, they're not the Father's words. uh, Not at this time. He is not going to disclose himself to the entire world, at least now. When he comes again, everyone will behold him. And there are other ways in which Christ is made known in the world. But right now, he's primarily concerned with his first advent and completing the mission that the Father has given to him. That mission, by taking on humanity and coming to the earth, was the redemption of those who would believe in him. That's you, believer, this morning. That's why he came. To disclose himself to you who believe in him and love him and keep his commandments. We saw last week that the evidence of one's faith and love is obedience. We see that throughout the scriptures. That's not just an isolated passage or idea. So to answer the question of Judas, not Iscariot, he goes much further than what he asks. His answer is, I am going to disclose myself to believers who love me and keep my word. But not only will I reveal myself to that person, the Father himself will love him. Not only I, but the Father will reciprocate that love. And greater still, the Father and I will both come and we will make our abode with him. Whoa. The word for abode here is the same word. That Jesus used in 14.1, 14.2 rather, in my Father's house are many dwelling places, many dwelling places, many dwellings, many abodes. This word is only used twice in, in the Bible, right here, 14.2, 14.23. His home. He makes his home with you. Christian, can you grasp this? Do you understand the implications of that? This is not you living in your house. In your house, you come and go. You sleep there at night. In the morning, you go out maybe to the store. You go to school. You leave for days or weeks at a time to do business or to go on on a vacation. This is God. He dwells in and with you as his abode. He doesn't leave. He never leaves. He doesn't go on a business trip. He doesn't go on a vacation. He is always, always, always there with you. 
Jesus has already said, as we saw last week of the Holy Spirit, he abides in you and will be with you and will be in you in verse 17 and verse 20. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Do you understand? What difference does this make? Ask yourself that question. What difference does this make in my life? The Father comes and makes His abode with me. The Son comes and makes His abode with me. The Spirit comes and makes His abode with me. The difference is life-changing. It is transformative. If you understand and you take the time to meditate and understand the fullness of what this means in a practical sense. Have you? Have you taken the time to meditate on this? To pray about it? To praise God for it? To consider the implications for your sanctification, for your growth, for your maturity, for your life that He dwells in with you? Or do you just accept that this is a theological fact with no practical effect? Why would we do that? Because we don't want to change. Like Chris mentioned last week, it's because we love our sin more than we love Him. And we do, you know, don't we? Don't. Don't do that. Don't love your sin more than Him. Love Him above all things because He lives in you and with you. He, the, the motivation for Him living in you and coming to you, what's His motivation? His love for you. Not your love of Him, but His love for you. That's why He's here. That's why He's with you and in you. He made you in His image. He saw, or he sees this morning, if you don't yet know him, your brokenness by sin. He saw your helplessness. And so he reached into time and space and redeemed you. Why? Love. Judas, will you disclose yourself to the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, in that sense. A love that he showered upon you, Christian, that is undeserving, yet is a lo- it is a love that is complete, it is infinite, it is sufficient for all things, his love for you. But even more than that, that he just loves you, it shows that the commands that he gives to you and to me, for you to keep, for us to keep, And that that obedience, that is a demonstration of our love for him, all are based on his love for us. It all flows from his love for us. There is no way that your obedience in any way merits his love. It's the other way around. His love merits your obedience. His infinite, marvelous Love inspires our obedience. It motivates us to first love Him and therefore obey Him. In this is not only the motivation for obedience, but the enablement, the empowerment for obedience. The resources for you to love and obey all come flowing from Him. You cannot do this on your own. God wants your love and obedience, yes, but they are both fueled by His love for us. And we can't get it backwards, never, ever. There is nothing you can do to earn God's love and approval. There is nothing in you that will love Christ on its own. Do you know that? There is nothing in you that can obey His word. As the Apostle Paul said, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So, it's all of grace. It's all of Him. All from Him. Ours is to understand, to contemplate, to meditate, to believe, to entrust, and by faith, 
in individual instances make those small decisions every single day to love him and to obey him based upon all that he's done and given to us. How can I, you ask? By his indwelling presence. He lives in you. He lives with you. The Father and the Son have made their abode, their home, with you, with us together, yes, but with us individually. He said it singularly, with Him. His Spirit lives in you if you are born again. If you are a Christian, you are born again. It's not two different kinds of Christians. By the Spirit you are born again, and He lives in you because He he came into your heart and, and reframed your life and renewed it and made you alive when you were dead. It is a spiritual truth. It is an actual truth. It is not theoretical or simply theological. It is reality. Reality. It is the reality to which we are called and the reality by which we live that he lives in us. Wow. And the life to which we are called is spiritual and it is supernatural when i say it is spiritual that does not mean that it is not physical because everything is spiritual even the physical life in which we live because the physical world in which we live is governed by spiritual principles transcendent principles from an absolute personal god who exists and made all things and he governs the universe and we live by those spiritual principles I mean that it is not just physical, but our lives, truly Christian, I think we we forget this sometimes, are spiritual and really supernatural. Because it is a life that is based on the dwelling of God himself and his son and his spirit in our very lives. How can that not make a difference in the way we live in the way we forgive, the way we pray, in the way we make love, in the way we spend our money, in the way we work, in the way we raise our children, in the way we do everything. It must. It must. If we think about it and believe it as true and act upon it by faith and obedience out of love for him. Our response, two responses, I would suggest to you. One, gratitude and praise for his presence. Thank him for it. Take some time this week to show him gratitude and praise him that he has chosen you for this kind of life by his love. He's chosen you for this kind of obedience He's chosen you for a fellowship with him and the Father that is beyond anything else in this world. To praise him with great gratitude for that. Second of all, there should be motivation, I believe, if we really understand this, to demonstrate and to share that love with others. Shouldn't we? Shouldn't we we be willing? Shouldn't we be motivated to tell others about this great love that he has shown to us? Of course. To obey his word. And how are we to know what word we are to to obey? In our passage last week, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Here Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is the word logos here. Somewhat synonymous. But how are we to know what his commandments are? How are we to know what his word is? There too, he has not left us to fend for ourselves, to dig it out on our own. He has given clear instructions to his disciples that have been passed on to us on how to understand his command, his commands to love him and to keep his word, which brings us to promise number two promise of his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word. The promise of his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word. Verse 25 and verse 26, he says, 
These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. I'm here for now. But, indicating he's soon to go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Helper, we saw that last week, this word paraclete, uh, translated different ways, sometimes as counselor, advocate, comforter, Sometimes it's just given as paraclete. But here, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit. He is holy. He is a being. He is God himself. And he will teach you. He's telling the disciples that. He's going to teach you everything you need to know. And he's going to call to remembrance all the things that you're having trouble understanding. They keep raising their hand. But what about this? But what about this? I don't get it. We don't. One day they're going to understand. And he's going to inform them. The Holy Spirit will. And teach them. And he assures his disciples that the things that he is speaking to them now, they will recall one day. When he departs, it's only when he goes to the Father, and that's why it's to their advantage. Because when he goes away, he will send the Holy Spirit. He's going away, and he's giving them these assurances, these promises, so that the disciples will be prepared in his absence. And these assurances are ours as well. And this is one of them. He's speaking to them that they will one day be able to recall these things. And how will they do this? By the Holy Spirit. We have to grasp this also. This nature of His Spirit. He is holy. He is unique. He is set apart. He is other than this world. There isn't anything in this world like the holiness of God. In him is all purity. There is no darkness. There is no sin. There is no shifting shadow. He is unique and different from everything. And he lives in us. The pure Holy Spirit in which there is no sin. He is to be treated as holy. This is essential Because he's a person and he dwells in us. He's not some impersonal impression that we have. We are made in the image of God and God is spirit and we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. And we are spiritual beings. And this point of contact with the Holy Spirit, he is holy, we are made in his image, and we have this point of contact with our spirit. In which he is able to teach us and lead us and guide us, having caused us to be born again. And he's given us that Holy Spirit. We see again God involved in in the, the triune God involved in this. The Holy Spirit is sent. The Father is the one who sends him. And he is sent in the name of Jesus on his behalf. He is sent to teach. Now this particular promise I think is given to the the apostles but by extension it comes to us, but he's given this specific promise to the apostles because when the Holy Spirit comes, these men in this room, you know what they're going to do? They're going to write the New Testament. How will they do that? Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All of the New Testament authors were either apostles or those closely associated with them. And Peter describes the process in 2 Peter 1. He says, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own personal interpretation. rather, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. The apostles were moved by the Holy Spirit. He gave them remembrance of all that Jesus said. They couldn't keep up with any of it. They didn't even understand a lot of it. And he's going to explain it to them. And they write it down for us. 
What a blessing for us to live in this time, to have this. Inspired writers and an inspired word. That's where the inspired word comes from. 2 Timothy 3.13, you know it. All scripture is inspired by God. Theonoustos, God breathed. Not God breathed in, but God breathed out. The pneuma, the word pneuma means spirit or breath. He breathed out his spirit into those men and they wrote down and inscripturated the graphe, the writings that we have in our hands. They're not just black words on a white page. It is the living word. The living word. But the same spirit teaches us Jesus in the upper room is teaching his disciples about the ministry of the Spirit to come. And in 1 John, John, who was in that room, teaches his disciples about the ministry of the Spirit in our lives. 1 John 2.20 But you have an anointing from the Holy One. He's talking to you, Christian. Do you believe, are you a believer in Christ? You have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean this in some charismatic way that there's some special dibbity-bobbity-boo thing that happens to you. But every Christian has the Spirit in our lives. You have the anointing from the Holy One. He's a person. And you all know this because we have the, the testimony of the Spirit. His Spirit testifies with our Spirit. As for you, he says in verse 27, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. He uses the same language of Jesus in the upper room. And then he says this, because you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing, teach, anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him as we learn the word of God. Now, when he says that you have no need of teachers, he doesn't mean that we don't need teachers in the church. What he's saying is that the scriptures are sufficient and the Holy Spirit giving, given to you, to us, is sufficient for us to understand and live by. God has given gifted teachers to the church and some have the specific spiritual gift of understanding the scriptures and communicating the scriptures in a way that the spirit uses but you have the sufficient resource in these words and by his holy spirit to understand this as well i don't really have anything over you i can learn from you i do life group <laughs> you guys teach me stuff all the time you have the sufficient ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to understand the meaning of God's word and to apply it and the power to do so. Because the Spirit is holy, He is deity, He is God, and He is given to us, in us, to teach us to be holy. You know what the purpose of the Holy Spirit is through that word? Our holiness that we would sin less and less, that we would not love our sin, that we would love him, that we would let our sin go, and we would become less and less sinful and more and more like Christ. The word of God is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is God-breathed scriptures so that you would become holy and that I would become holy and that we would become a church that is holy. Two lessons. The Holy Spirit plus the Holy Word equals a holy people. Or as you, as you have heard me say many times over the years, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to make us like the Son of God. Why are you here? Why are we here? We're not here to listen to sermons, are we? We're here to become like Jesus. We're here to let go of our sin. We're here to, to lay hold of holiness and a life of righteousness. How do you do that, Christian? By his word, through his spirit. That's the only way. There is no other way. They are sufficient. You have been made complete in Christ. You've been given everything pertain 
pertaining to life and godliness, and it is through His Spirit and His Word. He teaches us. He reproves us. He encourages us. He wounds us, and He heals us with His Word. These are not the words of earthly poets or earthly philosophers or earthly historians or bloggers or tweeters. These are the words of the living God, the living words of the living God. And the Holy Spirit, as the third person of the Trinity, is the agent by which we understand, by which we teach, by which we live out the commandments of Jesus, and by which we love Him. All of Him. We're not to quench the Spirit by resisting His will or with our sin in our life. We are not to grieve the Holy Spirit with our words. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption, Paul says in Ephesians 4. Grieving the Holy Spirit is in the context of sins of the tongue. When we're angry, when we're unforgiving, when we blow up. So when Jesus says, he who loves me keeps my word, this is it. Do you love him? Keep his word. And Christian, you can. You can. You can do this. But you say, I don't understand. I don't think I can. Yes, you can. You can. By his spirit, not by your own work. Not by your own devices. Not by your own understanding or ability, but by him. For all Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by Him, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man, the woman, the child of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. You can. It's through His Word, by His Spirit, to be equipped and adequate for all things, to serve Him, to worship Him, to share Him, to pray, to live, to obey, to love all through Him, all by Him. And the only way to properly love Jesus is to obey Him by the means that He has given to us, which is the Word and the Spirit. Promise number three. The promise of His peace and His joy. Promise of His peace and His joy. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He has said that he's going to send the Holy Spirit. He said that he does that because he loves us. He has said that he's going to teach us. He said that he's going to give us that power. But now another promise these promises, they just keep coming. They're overwhelming. They're life-changing. They're for the apostles and they're for us. Jesus is going away and they're grieving, yes. They're confused. They're not sure what's going on. They keep asking questions. And Jesus says to them at this juncture, it's going to be okay. But trust me. And he promises peace. The word peace uh, you know the Hebrew word is shalom. And so he, it was used as both a greeting and as a farewell. You come up to someone and you say shalom. If you're leaving, you'd say shalom, kind of like the Hawaiian word aloha. Obviously, he's going away and he's using it as a farewell. But it is more than what the world gives. These are not just words like, uh, hey, I'll see you later. Have a nice day. No, this is my peace. Did you catch that? He says, my peace. This is the, the peace that Jesus leaves with them. I'm going away, but I'm going to leave you with something. This promise is for you as well, Christian. Where Jesus is, there is peace. Is he here? Is he in you? Is he with you? Yes. He is the Prince of Peace. So where he is, there's peace, right? Yes. 
His presence and His peace are always related. Not, it is not just the absence of strife, but it is the presence of something that is serene and, and tranquil and real. It's not theoretical. You are promised His peace. And again, it's spiritual, of course. Again, it's supernatural, of course. And again, it is practical. It is divine, and it comes from Jesus Himself. And you are promised His peace. The peace of the world is dependent on circumstances, isn't it? When nations are at war, how do they resolve that? They have to come and they make a peace treaty. And there's no peace until the hostilities cease. But then that peace is always very kind of shaky, isn't it? Or you might be at war with a person, with your parent, with your spouse, someone that you work with, a neighbor, a child. You may be at war with them. And how do you solve that? How do you bring peace? When you get your job back, when that person comes around to seeing things my way, that's when we'll have peace, right? When your cancer is healed, then you'll have peace. No, the peace that Jesus brings is otherworldly because it's given in the midst of the war, it's given at the time of the battle, it's given when you are verbally attacked. It's given before surgery. It's given in the ER. It's given during the treatment. It's given when you lose your job. All of those things. That peace is not solving those things. The peace that Jesus gives is not dependent on circumstances. The peace that Jesus gives is not dependent on circumstances. Is it? And note this well. This peace is a gift. My peace, I give. I give it to you. We want to manage it. We want to broker peace. We want to achieve it. We want to earn it. Like salvation, we do not merit it. And we can do nothing to manufacture it. We must instead understand it and believe it because it is true, because Jesus promised it, because he said so, and he's God. And we recognize it comes from the person of Jesus in his name, on his behalf, all that he is, all that he's done. And these things make peace both possible and practical. You have a part. We have a part. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And then he says, not as the world gives, do I give to you. And then he gives two commands, two imperatives. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor do not let your heart be fearful. Do not let your heart be troubled. Do not let your heart be fearful. This we have control over. They are not peace itself, but they are the path to peace. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God that surpasses all comprehension will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on those things. Think about those things. That's our part. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. 14.1, he said the exact same words. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And then he said, believe in God, believe also in me. What's the antidote? Faith. Trust. Don't let your heart be troubled. You can't control someone else's heart or mouth or attitude toward you. Think of the promises so far. The triune God lives in you and with you. The Holy Spirit has given you God's word in all of its supernatural power. The peace that Jesus possesses is given to you. Our part, your part, my part is not to give in to troubling thoughts. Is not to give in to troubling feelings. Not to give in to troubling circumstances. 
but to receive what he gives to us and to renew our minds by faith with truth. Fearful, the word is not the typical word for fearful. He says, nor let your heart be fearful. It's a word that could be translated, nor let your heart lack courage. Whatever battle you find yourself in, don't lack courage. Because your trust in the one who brings peace will bring that peace. I want you to ask yourself right now. What is the battle that you are in that troubles your soul? What is the circumstance you are in right now that robs you of this peace? Don't fret. Don't let your heart be troubled. Nor let it be fearful. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. Renew your mind. Pray, praise, and accept the peace that comes from Him. Jesus tells His disciples that they have kind of a myopic vision right here. And He encourages them to look outside of themselves because they're, He's going away and they're only thinking about themselves at this point, basically. He says in verse 28, You heard that I said I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you love me, you would have... Rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Jesus said they should rejoice that he's going back to the Father because, because they love him. They should want the most and the best for him. They don't see the forest for the trees. Oh, they're looking at the circumstances, and we do the same thing. And Jesus says, look at the bigger picture. You should rejoice. There should be joy that I'm going back to the Father because he's greater than I. I will be better off. You will be better off. This is the plan. This is the plan. If they really loved Jesus, they would rejoice because their love is immature. I don't think he's saying that they don't love him. I think he's just saying that their love is still kind of self-centered. You're only thinking of yourselves. They have troubled hearts. They don't get it. Jesus is saying the true agape love is rejoicing at the good of another. He's not complaining. He's just telling them the truth. This is for the good. This is the best thing. They should rejoice because the Father is greater. Because they would be assured that the Father will be working out His will. They would know once and for all that Jesus' words were the Father's words. They would know once and for all that Jesus did not speak on His own initiative. They would know once and for all that all he said was true. Which means, which verse 29 means, now I have told you before it happens. So that when it, when it does happen, you'll believe. Your faith will come to maturity. A lesson here. Trust in Jesus results in peace. Love of Jesus results in joy. When we place our trust in Jesus, there are many other things, but I'm just from this passage. When we place our trust in Jesus, it will result in peace, but we have to trust. And when we love Jesus, it will result in joy. Our lives should be filled with joy as we see God's will being done. Jesus desires our faith to be mature and trusting in the fulfilled words of Christ and Jesus desires our love to be mature, seeking the best of others. Promise number four. Final promise in verses 30 and 31 are his victory and redemption. His victory of redemption, rather. He says in verse 30, I will not speak with you much more. He's trying to bring this conversation to a close. Because the night is getting on, and soon the Roman cohort will come, which is what he says. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Who is the ruler of the world? The ruler of the world is Satan. The scriptures call him the God of this world, small g. He is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians chapter 2. 
We know that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is the one who is, is controlling the world system that is apart from God. But he says, the ruler of the world is coming. How is he coming? He entered into to, to Judas Iscariot, the other Judas. Satan entered into him, and Jesus knows they're on their way with the Roman cohort. They're on their way to come and to arrest him. But he says, and he has nothing in me. He has nothing in me. There isn't anything in Jesus that he can accuse him of because Jesus is sinless. He is the perfect man. He will be the perfect sacrifice for us. And Satan can't come and say, yeah, but you, 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 you did this. No, I didn't. He cannot accuse Jesus of anything. And so what does this mean for us? What is true for Jesus becomes true for us. Satan has no ground of accusation for you, Christian, because you, are, you have peace with God. Since we are in him and his new creation, since he lives in us, the Father in us, the Son in us, the Spirit in us, since we have been redeemed, we have been justified in his sight. We have imputed righteousness. That doesn't mean that we are perfect and we don't sin it just means that Satan is the accuser of the brethren and that when we sin, we plead Christ alone. Right? We plead the blood of Christ in him alone. We do not want to give Satan a place, and we can, a place of accusation. We do as Jesus did, which is we seek to demonstrate to the world the love of the Father by keeping his commands but when we sin, the ruler of this world with a small r, he will seek to accuse you in things like these. Ephesians 4, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. When you have unresolved anger in your life, when you have unresolved broken relationships, guess what? You're saying, hey, come on in. You give the devil an opportunity to make accusations. And forgiveness Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, Forgive so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we're not ignorant of his schemes. You know what one of his schemes is? To get you to not forgive someone who has harmed you, hurt you, and you don't want to forgive. I can't forgive them. I'll never forgive them. Well, it's a scheme of the devil. Recognize it for what it is. Why would you give him ground of accusation when we can rest in the finished work of Christ and obey his power and be free of personal guilt and the guile of Satan himself? We're free of those things in Christ. In conclusion, his victory of redemption is our victory through redemption. It's our victory because of his work for us. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Meaning Satan. But God lives in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Spirit dwells in your heart. And greater is he who lives in you than he who rules the world. So the promises fulfilled are these, and we list them very quickly. His love and his presence, his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word, his peace and his joy, his victory and his redemption. This reminds us of every one of those promises. Would you prepare your, the bread and the cup? If you are his redeemed... If he lives in you because you have believed in Christ, you've turned for your sin. Or if right at this moment you're asking him, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because Christ died for me. And I believe in you. Would you give me that gift of eternal life right this moment? We invite you to the table. This represents, yes, his shed blood and his body broken for us. But it represents all of these promises as well. And I've asked you a couple of times to think about 
these things. And so would you take a moment of silence to think about his great love and his presence in your life, his Holy Spirit and his Holy Word, his peace and his love, and the victory that you have because of the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Oh God, teach us, give us understanding through the word by your spirit of all that we have read this morning, the truths that we've studied most of our lives, that we hear week after week, that we read daily, may we not take them for granted. Thank you, Father, for your love which is infinite and eternal in your presence. That is life-changing. For your Holy Spirit who dwells in us now that we are redeemed and we have a new nature and the Holy Spirit and we have one another and we have the Holy Word of God. Thank you. Thank you for your peace because of the Prince of Peace. And the peace that surpasses all comprehension of this world, this world of turmoil, this world of fear. And thank you for your joy that you give to us that is unspeakable and full of glory. And the victory that is ours in redemption because Christ gave his body and his blood for us. We claim these promises and believe in them and pray that we would live them through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me.